coming up on The Exam Room. If you're living with prediabetes, your chances of actually reversing prediabetes is almost 100%. If you were to adopt not only a plant-based diet, but what we recommend is a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, which is very similar to what Dr. Neil Barnard also recommends. So again, prediabetes, your chances are very, very high. Now, if you're living with type 2 diabetes, your chances go down just by a little bit. Your chances go down to somewhere between, call it 80 and 85%, maybe a little bit higher. And even if you're not able to fully reverse diabetes, I mean, is it pretty much a foregone conclusion that almost universally across the board, if you apply these methods, you can definitely still see some improvement? You will, without a shadow of a doubt, see a significant collection of symptoms improving or a significant collection of improvements in your overall health. So that's something that the majority of the population living with diabetes is also looking for. And it can be a very, very simple way to get there. Welcome to the exam room podcast brought to you by the physicians committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Buffalo, New York, Lakewood, Colorado, and San Juan, Puerto Rico. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 85 of season 6, number 481 overall. As we often do, let's begin with a fact today. And the fact is this. One out of 10 people in the United States right now have diabetes. And of those people, one out of every five are completely oblivious that they do. And so what that does is it creates a recipe for a health disaster. It is an epidemic and one that is only growing worse. But the good news is... It doesn't have to be that way. My guest today says it does not have to be that way, and it is time to rethink how we treat this disease. It is time to rethink a lot of things, as a matter of fact, including sugar and diabetes. And once we know what actually causes diabetes, then we can improve diabetes. So we are going to be getting into that today. And for a lot of people, what this potentially could mean is getting off of medicine. No more painful insulin injections. No more finger sticks. It means living a longer, healthier, and potentially even diabetes-free life. So Cyrus Kambata, our dear friend from Mastering Diabetes, he is here to share his proven way that has helped thousands and thousands of people stop those painful sticks and injections, get off of those medications, and live the diabetes-free life that they have been craving and doing it the natural way. Cyrus is here, caught up with him on the exam room live this week. So it's our second of two big live episodes. Of course, we just had Dr. Christy Funk on here to kick off our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series for the year. But today's focus is on preventing and even reversing diabetes, hopefully for a lot of cases. And we had a lot of great questions come up during the live broadcast, including we were talking about oils and which are the worst and which are ones that are maybe a little bit less nefarious. Maybe that's the best way to put it. So we get kind of a, a ranking there and Cyrus does a really good job of going in and breaking down the different kinds of fats and the oils that you absolutely positively want to avoid. We also get into some cooking tips for cooking without oil. We had a lot of people wondering about that during the show today. We also get into carbohydrates. We hear from somebody who was just diagnosed with diabetes and they are terrified of introducing things like potatoes and legumes and complex carbohydrates into their diet. So what advice does Cyrus have for that person? Also, interestingly, we get into processed foods and their effects on blood sugar because we do eat a very heavily processed diet here in the United States and in a lot of places around the world. So what effect do these ultra processed foods have on our blood glucose levels by and large? So we're gonna be getting into that. Also talking about the difference between fruit juice and vegetable juice for people who really love a good glass of juice, but don't want to have that blood glucose level spike. So we're gonna be getting into that with Cyrus 
us as well and a lot of other questions. And as always, if you ever want to join us for the exam room live, would love to see you there. Always love when the exam room is just flooded with so many great questions during the live show. And we do it every Wednesday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. We've got links to both right now in the episode notes. But before we do anything else, I have to remind you coming up very, very soon, our big exam room live and in-person event, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity with Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn and the entire Esselstyn family. That's going to be November 7th at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. We will be recording an episode of the show and presenting the Esselstyn family, including Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, with the inaugural Mid-Struber Ambassador for a Healthier World Award, honoring their lifetime of work everything that they have done to help make the world a healthier place. So would love for you to be there and celebrate this momentous occasion and enjoy the show live and in person. Washington, D.C., November 7th at the National Press Club. Tickets on sale right now at pcrm.org events or click that link in the episode notes. But right now, let's talk diabetes. Get into it. Help for diabetes the natural way with the one and only Cyrus Kambata. Cyrus, thanks for being here, my friend. What's up, my man? Thank you so much for inviting me back here, Chuck. I'm thrilled that you're here. I always have such a good time when you're on the program. And because this is the exam room live, we're opening up the doctor's mailbag. So if there's anything that you would like to ask Cyrus about diabetes, go ahead, throw that in the comments or in the chat. And we're going to get to as many as we possibly can here on the show today. And I want to start with a hot button issue. I mean, let's just dive right into the deep end, do a cannonball here. And recently I've been noticing on on your Instagram feed and in a lot of blogs. And anytime we talk about oil on the show, people's yeah. ears just perk up and you are either as, you know, your, your team oil or your team anti-oil. And it's like politics up on Capitol Hill, man. There is a lot of fighting that goes into this. So when it comes to oil and diabetes, I mean, what what is the best practice here, yay or nay, my friend? It's a great question, actually. I'm really glad that you brought this up because uh, oil is very contentious, just like you talked about. You know, If we think about eggs as an example, eggs were good in the 80s and then they were bad in the 90s and then they were good in the early 2000s and then they were bad and then they're good again. And at a certain point, you're like, great, I don't even really know what to think. Should I have one egg a day, multiple eggs a day? Are they good for me? Are they not good for me? Am I doctor recommending? The same type of situation is happening with oil. Uh, oil was considered heart healthy. And then oil was vilified specifically by the plant-based world. And now oil is becoming back into fashion again. And part of the reason for that is because there's, there's this constant recycling of information, this constant uh, analysis to try and figure out, like, do we really know what the answer to this question is? So I've done a, de a decent amount of research on oil to try and figure out, is it helpful for people who are living with blood glucose irregularity? Or is it actually not helpful and can it cause more blood glucose irregularity? And what the sum total of my research has actually demonstrated is that if you are living with a pre-existing chronic disease, specifically pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and then any form of insulin-dependent type 1 diabetes, then adding oil to your diet can actually cause your blood glucose to do very strange things. And all of this is sort of predicated on a very simple concept, which is that the thing that causes insulin resistance is an excess consumption of saturated fat in your diet. Okay, so when your saturated fat intake is decently high and when your total fat intake is decently high, that can set the stage for this condition known as insulin resistance. And when insulin resistance is, is present inside of your liver and muscles, that makes it very challenging for you to be able to consume carbohydrates and metabolize them properly. Therefore, our recommendation is that if you're living with a blood glucose irregularity, then we strongly recommend reducing your oil intake or eliminating it altogether. And if you do that, you're likely to find that your blood glucose control improves significantly. 
All right, but let's talk about perhaps another angle on this. Can, is it possible to talk about like maybe ranking the oils from worst to first, so to speak? Because I mean, olive oil is one thing, and then coconut oil, which is just a saturated fat bomb, is something that's a little bit different. And by sure. a little, I mean a lot here. So is it possible to rank in terms of the effect that it may have on your insulin resistance worst to first here? Yeah, exactly. So the, the foods in general, the foods and the oils that are going to cause the highest level of insulin resistance are those that contain either trans fats or saturated fat. So if you had to sort of rank order the three types of fat from worst to best, the number one would be that the worst type of fat to put into your body is a trans fat. The second worst is a saturated fat. The third worst is an unsaturated fat. Okay. So, um, the foods that contain the oils that have the highest trans fat content are the ones that are called partially hydrogenated. So if you see partially hydrogenated anything oil, partially hydrogenated soybean oil, partially hydrogenated uh, grapeseed oil, partially hydrogenated canola oil, any of those, just get them out of your diet altogether because trans fats, the, the, the product of partial hydrogenation results in these things called trans fats. And trans fats are absolute dietary napalm for your vasculature. So those are the worst. The next worst are the ones that contain significant saturated fat like you had alluded to, okay? So saturated fat is the predominant type of fatty acid that's present inside of coconut oil. Now, coconut oil has become this like new superstar in the world of uh, you know, nutrition and people in the paleo world and people in the, uh, in the ketogenic world will tell you that you should consume lots of coconut oil because it's actually very good for you. And the, the take that they have on it is that it's not just saturated fat, but it's actually what's called MCT, medium chain triglycerides. Without getting too, too complicated, what that means is that saturated fats have different lengths. Some of them can be 16 carbons long, which is considered a long chain. Some of them can be 18 carbons long. Medium chain tends to be somewhere about, about 12 to 14 carbons long. So the way that those medium chain uh, tri, uh, fatty acids act is slightly different than the longer chain fatty acids. But that being said, they're still 100% saturated. And we know without a shadow of a doubt, we've actually wrote about this in the Mastering Diabetes book, that saturated fat causes insulin resistance. Saturated fat is the single most effective trigger for the development of insulin resistance inside of your liver and muscle. So as a result of that, when you're consuming coconut oil and you're getting 100% saturated fat, then that can actually quickly set the stage for insulin resistance and cause blood glucose dysre uh, dysregulation. Uh, so that then sets the stage. Sorry, were you going to say something? No, 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 no. Please go go ahead. I thought that you were wrapping up, man. I thought that you were in the home stretch, and now yeah. I feel bad that I cut you off because there's more to come. So keep dropping those nuggets of nutrition knowledge, my man. For sure. Okay, so the last thing I'll say is when, when you're talking about olive oil as an example. So olive oil is not a pure saturated fat. Olive oil has a combination of unsaturated fat and saturated fat. It's got some MUFAs and PUFAs, which are called monounsaturated fats, polyunsaturated fats. Both of those are, are technically considered better for you. And then it's got a little bit of saturated fat, and then it's got hopefully zero trans fat because it's not partially hydrogenated. So as a result of that, if you were to move from coconut oil to uh, olive oil, you'd be doing yourself a service because you'd be getting more unsaturated fat. Okay, so the same thing goes true for things like canola oil because that tends to be a little bit less saturated as well. And so I'm going to put sort of those two in that category right there. And then people have things like, you know, walnut oil and avocado oil. And those tend to be more unsaturated than they are saturated. And that's a good thing. You know, we could go down the list and say, well, what about this oil? And what about this oil? What about this oil? And each one of them has a slightly different character or you know, slightly different balance of saturated to unsaturated. But the idea here is that coconut tends to be the most saturated and then olive oil tends to be significantly less saturated. And that's a good thing for you. All right. I want to say a quick hello to Karen, who's watching right now, all the way over in Germany. Lee tuned in in Lubbock, Texas. Philip is in Indianapolis. Uh, Natalie also over in Germany. Wendell checking in. Sally from Michigan. Steve might get the uh, furthest distance from us here on the East Coast of the U.S. Steve is tuned in from Hong Kong. Cyrus, that's pretty cool. That's a big deal. I love the global impact 
that this show has. I say it almost every single time because it blows my mind as we have people watching literally from all over the world. Is there anybody from Antarctica? Has that that ever happened? I've I've yet to get that, but I would love to check that one off. I'm not sure what the current population is in Antarctica, but you got to imagine at least one person has watched uh, the exam room from (laughs) all the way down there. Um, But speaking of Philip up in Indianapolis, uh, at 1217, he put this in the chat. I thought that this was pretty cool. He said, I've reversed and cured type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and fatty liver disease with the whole food plant-based diet. I highly recommend and going in 100% from the start. And I guess, you know, speaking of from the start, this is honestly where we should have started. You know, if somebody really is looking to improve their insulin resistance and they want to take control of their diabetes, how realistic is it that they would be able to do that using the methods that you guys have at Mastering Diabetes where they could get off of the medicine? They're not going to be dependent on uh, insulin injections anymore. How realistic is it to think that, man, you know, with these diet and lifestyle changes, you can see some significant improvements and maybe get off all of your medications altogether? Yeah, great question. So if you're living with prediabetes, your chances of actually reversing prediabetes is almost 100%. If you were to adopt not only a plant-based diet, but what we recommend is a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, which is very similar to what Dr. Neil Barnard also recommends. So again, prediabetes, your chances are very, very high. Now, if you're living with type 2 diabetes, your chances go down just by a little bit. Your chances go down to somewhere between, call it 80 and 85%, maybe a little bit higher. Nobody knows the answer to that question. And the reason that it's a little bit, uh, the numbers are just a little bit uh, smaller than they are in the, type, type, in the prediabetes population is because some people who are living with type 2 diabetes have beta cell burnout or ha- are experiencing beta cell burnout, which effectively means that the beta cells in their pancreas are no longer capable of secreting a sufficient amount of insulin. The way that you would know that is you go get a test called a C-peptide test. You can go to your doctor, you can get the C-peptide test at a routine you know, laboratory like a Quest Diagnostics, and they will tell you what your number is. Your, your, your C-peptide sort of is either in the low category, the medium category, or the high category. If you're in the low category, what that means is the chances of you reversing type 2 diabetes using only your diet is not very high. You can definitely do it, and I still would actually recommend it, but insulin injections may be in your future. If you're medium or high, then the chances of you reversing type 2 diabetes using only your diet are very good. And so just like Philip, I would recommend definitely uh, going down that path and reducing your total fat content Uh, eating as many plant foods as possible and trying to stay away from as many processed foods uh, at the same time. That is a phenomenally powerful system. And not only can it lower your blood glucose, it can also lower your cholesterol, lower your blood pressure. It can improve your gut health as Dr. Wolbosa, what's a good friend of ours, will also tell you. And it can transform so many different things about your overall metabolic health. Absolutely. And and even if you're not able to fully reverse diabetes, I mean, is it pretty much a foregone conclusion that almost universally across the board, if you apply these methods, you start eating that plant-based diet, you can definitely still see some improvement, even if you don't quite get to the point where you're able to come off of everything. Yeah, exactly right. You will, you will without a shadow of a doubt, see a significant collection of symptoms improving or a significant collection of of uh, improvements in your overall health. You know it better than anybody, Chuck. When you eat a whole food plant-based diet, uh, weight loss becomes much simpler and attaining your ideal body weight becomes possible for the first time in many years. And staying at your ideal body weight becomes possible for the first time in many years. So that's something that the majority of the population living with diabetes is also looking for. And it can be a very, very simple way to get there. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, that's the key. It's, it is losing weight. Like I always say like losing weight is almost the easy part. It's keeping it off that's hard. And that's why so many of us go up and down the scale and up and down the scale. I'm curious, have there been any studies done on what the effect of like always going up and down that weight escalator, the effect that that has on your insulin resistance over time? Does that impact your risk of having diabetes if you're always gaining and losing and gaining and losing? 
You know, uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I would say logically, sure, if you were to sort of be on this roller coaster and lose weight and gain it back and lose weight and gain it back, then over the course of time, you're going to probably sustain a significant amount of damage, particularly to your vasculature and probably to your liver. Uh, is it 100% irreversible? Probably not. But the, every time you sort of lose weight and gain it back, you're sort of like stacking it, making it a little bit more challenging. That being said, have I read a paper that specifically describes, you know, people who go through the weight loss, you know, the yo-yo weight loss over the course of time and then try and quantify how much insulin resistance? No, I haven't read that paper. I'm not sure if it actually exists, but maybe it does. Um, but logically, sure, it sounds like a reasonable uh, conclusion. All right. Let's go back to the oil question here. A lot of people are are still chatting about this one right now. Kind of set up a uh, uh, a little hot topic discussion there, as you might expect. Uh -huh. um, I know that uh, you've you've got your cookbook there. Um, so, what are some options for somebody who wants to roast vegetables? We had an exam room wondering about this. They want to roast vegetables. They want to eat clean. They yeah. don't want to use oil when they're roasting them. I'm a blanch. And then roast guy, that way you can still lock in some of that moisture. It's not going to be a completely uh, dry uh, roast. So how would you recommend doing that sans oil so you can really keep that fat ultra low? Okay, so here's what I would recommend. There's, there's this concept known as AGEs. That AGEs are particular types of compounds that are created in food when it is heated. AGE stands for Advanced Glycation End Products. And advanced glycation end products are not your friends. These are the types of compounds that when you consume them and then when they actually get stored in, in tissues can become very problematic over the course of time. They're oxidized or partially oxidized compounds that can cause blood glucose, your, your blood glucose to do very strange things. Okay? So the goal is in whatever, whatever food you're preparing, you want to limit your AGE content or your AGE production. So... The two things that stimulate the, pr the production of AGEs are number one, high temperature, and number two, low moisture environments. So if you're cooking something at high temperature in low moisture environment, then you can you know, reasonably predict that the AGE content is going to increase significantly. But if you do the exact opposite and say, okay, if I want to limit AGE production, then I'm going to cook with moisture, number one, and I'm going to cook at a lower temperature. So that leads you to understanding that a simple thing that you can do to cook foods um, is on the stovetop, as an example, you can either steam vegetables, okay, or you can boil vegetables. Again, both of those are moisture-rich environments and both of those don't require very high temperatures, okay? But if you're gonna go into the oven and you're gonna say, well, I'm not gonna use oil because I've, been, I've heard that oil is not necessarily good for me, then how would you do it? Well, what you could do is you could take a baking dish and um, you could put a thin layer of water at the very bottom of that baking dish. And then you could put your vegetables inside of that so that when the, uh, the, the environment increases in temperature, the, the water at the bottom of that baking dish actually puts moisture up into the environment. So it actually causes a humid environment. And then the entire environment has water content in it. And that enables your, your vegetables to roast in a moisture-rich environment. Uh, number two, rather than baking something at 450 degrees, you could bake it at 350 degrees. And as a result of that, you're going to keep the temperature down just a little bit more. So those are two simple techniques that can actually have a profound effect on the production of AGEs that can significantly limit the damage that it causes once it gets inside of you. Yeah, Margie on Facebook has another pro tip. She recommends covering uh, your baking sheet in, uh, in foil or something like that. And that'll also keep that moisture locked in there. She says she never uses oil. And I would imagine that would be especially effective if you put that thin layer of water on the bottom of the pan as well. I think that that would essentially steam it while you're baking at the same time. So that's, that's exactly a pretty right. cool thing. Now um, there's another trick too. Let me, if I don't mind me saying one thing. Yeah, man, lay it on. Um, you can also use parchment paper. So if you took your vegetables and you put them onto a baking dish, Okay, and normally what people do is they'll either put foil on that baking dish or they'll take oil and they'll mix the vegetables in oil and then put them on the baking dish. And when you do it that way, the oil acts as a little bit of a lubricant to protect the vegetable from getting stuck to the actual baking dish. It's helpful, it works, okay? But if you're not gonna use oil, then what I would do is instead of using foil, get rid of that. Instead of using oil, get rid of that. Put 
parchment paper. Very, very simple thing. You put parchment paper on the bottom of your baking dish. Then you take your vegetables. Maybe you spice them up. Maybe you add some flavorings to them. You put your vegetables onto the parchment paper. You stick them in the oven. Practically nothing sticks to parchment paper. Okay, so the vegetables get cooked. You don't really necessarily need that much moisture. And when you get them off of the the baking dish, there's nothing for them to stick to. Yep. I learned about that from a chef in a Whole Foods one time. Like he just took me to school for whatever reason, was doing a cooking demo in the produce section and he had parchment paper and he was just wrapping the vegetables in that and putting those in the oven. And I'll be daggone if they weren't delicious. It was the most <laughs> incredible daggone thing. Absolutely. Um, Kelly in Detroit, we're going to take your question in just a second, but as long as we're still talking a little bit about oils and fats, I want to grab a question from Jeremy at 1215. He says, I was type two before going vegan and was wondering about fat percentage. Is there a sweet spot for the percentage of fat? I'm very active and I think 17% is according to the scale where I'm at. Not sure where to go to feel good. So Mm -hmm. reverse this diabetes concern now about its fat percentage overall. What can you tell him? Okay. I, I'm assuming, is he referring to body fat percentage? That is to- that is what I'm kind of gathering here. Yeah. You body fat percentage. Okay, great. So it depends on many different things. Um, depends on your age, depends on your activity level. For a male, uh, uh, an, a body fat percentage somewhere between 10 and 15% is considered very good. Okay. When you are very athletic and you can get sub 10%, that is only something that a very small percentage of the population will ever achieve. Um, 17%, to be perfectly honest, is is fantastic. But if you could lower that and get it maybe just like a little bit sub 15, then you'd be doing yourself a significant uh, improvement. And the truth is that um, the body fat percentage calculation doesn't actually discriminate between body fat that is what's called subcutaneous, which is directly underneath your skin, you know, inside of your your arms and in your chest and your shoulders. It's that layer of fat that's just right there on the surface versus what's called your visceral fat. And your visceral fat is what's inside of your abdomen. And it's the it's because it it, it protects your viscera, which are your digestive tissues. So the visceral fat in your abdomen is significantly more metabolically dangerous than is the subcutaneous fat that's underneath your skin. So that one number of 17% can't really discriminate between the two of those. And if you can get what's called like an in-body scan, it can actually tell you what the difference is between those two different depots. But the goal is to try and minimize the amount of visceral adiposity that you have in your trunk, and then also um, try and get your overall fat content down to like I said before, somewhere between 10 to 15% would be a good range. All right. Let's do some mind-blowing uh, conversation here for people who have not been on the show before when you're here. And let's talk a little bit about carbs, healthy carbs. Kelly in Detroit posted this at 1150. They were here early. I love that. Thanks for watching, Kelly. Yeah. I'm a type 2 diabetic and I want to try a plant-based diet, but I'm worried about legumes and potatoes and whole grains spiking my blood sugar. So definitely a valid concern based off of, I'm sure, what Kelly has been told up until this point, but you, I know, view those whole carbs, those complex carbohydrates a little bit differently. So what can you tell Kelly? Carbs, what are those? I've never heard of those. (laughs) There are these things, you know, they're good. They're good and stuff. Depending on what kind. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So most of the people will tell you that they're eating a low-carbohydrate diet, uh, especially when they're considering losing weight or trying to reduce their blood glucose. And that's because the public narrative is that carbs are bad for you. And if you eat carbs, they're going to make you fat and they're going to cause your blood sugar to go high. But in my mind, a lot of the verbiage that we use in the world of carbohydrate metabolism is just totally backwards. So I don't like to use the word carbs. I like to use the word carbohydrate because it's a little bit more descriptive and that's actually, you know, it's not a, it's not an, uh, it's not a shorthand version. Secondarily, I don't like to use the word sugar. I don't like to use the word blood sugar. I like to refer to it as blood glucose because that's truly what is being measured, okay? So what most people mean when they say I'm eating a low-carb diet is they should be very clear in their language. They, They mean I am trying to either reduce or eliminate my intake of sugar and artificial sweeteners and I'm trying to reduce my intake of, uh, you know, refined carbohydrates like 
breads and cereals and pastas and cookies and crackers and chips and sodas, okay? But it's too long. Nobody wants to say all those words. So they basically say, yeah, I'm eating a low-carb diet, right? And, and what that does is it makes people think like, oh, well, all carbs are bad for me. I heard a banana has carbs. I heard watermelon has carbs. I heard black beans have carbs. I guess those are bad for me too. And then they don't eat those foods, okay? But unfortunately, in this world, you got to be very, very, very specific about the words that you use because there's a big difference between the refined carbohydrates that come from the cookies, the crackers, the chips, the pastas, and sodas versus the whole carbohydrate that come from fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains. So Kelly asked this question. She says, I'm type 2 diabetic and I want to try a plant-based diet, but I'm worried about legumes and potatoes and whole grains spiking my blood sugar. I'm going to change your language. I'm worried about legumes, potatoes, and whole grains spiking my blood glucose. Okay. Now, there's a fundamental difference between the way that the refined carbohydrates function and the way that the whole carbohydrates function. And the truth is that we want to reduce or eliminate the refined carbohydrates because those are problematic for your liver and they can cause a rapid influx of glucose into your blood in a very short period of time, which causes your blood glucose to rise quickly and can make you look at your blood glucose an hour after eating food and then being like, darn, why is it so high? But when you eat the whole carbohydrate, rich foods like fruits, like starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains, those are actually very good for you. And those are the types of carbohydrate energy which have many different positive attributes associated with them. Number one, they're fiber rich. Fiber is a food for trillions of bacteria inside of your gut microbiome, and that is critically important for your long-term health. Number two, they are micronutrient rich. They have vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals, and those are critically important for your vascular health, for your brain health, for your thyroid, for your liver, for your kidneys, for your sexual organs, and for your muscles. So those are the types of foods that you want to be eating. Again, fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains. The question becomes this. If I were to start eating those foods today and it spikes my blood glucose and my glucose goes up after a meal, is that bad for me? And my answer is yes. We want to do it in a systematic fashion. I'm suggesting that you eat more whole carbohydrate-rich food, but you're suggesting that when you do that, your glucose goes up. So there's a solution. The reason that your blood glucose is likely going up when you eat those foods is because you're currently living in an insulin-resistant state, meaning that your the fat content in your diet is already high to begin with. So in a fat-rich environment, when fat makes up a significant portion of your total calories, then it becomes very hard to consume anything with carbohydrate energy. So the first thing that I would recommend everyone do if they're really concerned about their blood glucose is to take that fat-rich environment and reduce it so that rather than eating 30% of your total uh, calories from fat, you eat between 10 and 15% of your total calories from fat. When you do that and you hold that constant for at least one week, that is step one, then you migrate into step two, which is to start to increase the total amount of carbohydrate energy inside of your diet. So if you can do it in this two-step manner by first reducing your total fat intake and then secondarily increasing your whole carbohydrate content, what you are likely to find is what thousands of people who've gone through our coaching program have found, which is that their blood glucose stays very stable and the addition of these new whole carbohydrate-rich foods does not cause their blood glucose to do weird things. In fact, their blood glucose might even come down a little bit more over the course of time because they have reduced their total fat intake first before doing anything else. Does that make any sense? It does. And I'm wondering if there's like a, a two or maybe a three week kind of a, a washout period where, you know, you start to eat these whole carbohydrates that, that we're talking about and you still might see your blood glucose do some funky things, even if you, as you were saying, take your fat content down. Does it take a little bit of time for things to kind of self-regulate and, you know, when, you know, how long before somebody has to, you know, push the panic buttons? Eh, this isn't working for me. Yeah, it's a good question. So if you were to do it this way, just like we're recommending, and you were to reduce your total fat content to what I like to say is either between 10 and 15% of your total calories, which is a kind of vague number, or what my recommendation is, what makes it pretty clear is to keep your fat content somewhere between 20 and 30 grams per day, which is about, about the same amount. If you were to do that and you were to keep that consistent for call it 
you know, three weeks and you were not seeing any difference in your blood glucose concentrations and your blood glucose was still high and was riding high all day, every day, then the next thing I would do is I would go get that C-peptide blood test that we talked about earlier. Because you could be the type of person whose pancreas is just not able to secrete enough insulin. And as a result of that, your glucose values will stay high and they will stay high for a long period of time. So two to three weeks is a really short amount of time for you to be able to try this experiment. And when you do it, chances are your glucose will come down. But if it doesn't happen, then go get the C-peptide blood test and then we can reevaluate to see whether or not you might actually have an insulin secretion deficiency. All right. As long as we're talking about carbs, let's grab a question from Roxina at 1237. Uh, mm -hmm. says, can you please comment on whole grain pasta and brown rice? Are they kind of gray list in terms of where they might be uh, for our health or are they too refined in your estimation? What do you think there? Okay. Whole grain pasta and brown rice. Okay. I'm assuming she's not saying brown rice pasta. She's just saying whole grain pasta. And Two brown separate rice. things, my man. Two separate yeah. things. Okay, cool. So Whole grain pasta is going to be better than the traditional white pasta that's made from pure wheat. It's usually called durum wheat. Um, so when you get whole grain pasta, that's a step in the right direction. The truth is that what, what I would get if you really do want to eat pasta is I would get a pasta that's made from some version of lentil. There's chickpea pasta. There's edamame pasta. There's brown rice pasta, which is not a legume. Uh, and there's a couple other types of bean pastas that you can get in the grocery store that actually are very, very gentle on your blood glucose, that would be my first stop. Secondarily, when it comes to brown rice, brown rice is considered what's called an intact whole grain, and those are fantastic for you. Intact whole grains means that it's minimally processed, so it's, it, it retains as much of its micronutrient content as possible. It retains as much fiber as possible, and it has not been bleached and it has, has not lost a lot of nutrients in the manufacturing process. So other foods in that same category are things like quinoa and farro and millet and buckwheat and spelt and brown rice. So any of those whole grains that have strange names, by all means, I would put them into your diet and I would not necessarily worry about them triggering or causing an increase in your chronic disease risk. Uh, they're quite tasty too. If you haven't experimented with some of those different forms of pasta, they're not half bad. You know, they're even good. if you're even if you're skeptical, like go ahead, give it a try. Your 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 taste buds might wind up thanking you. Um, I want to ask you this, because as long as we're talking about processed food, and, and pasta is to a certain extent a processed food, but predominantly in the standard diet here, my man, we have ultra processed foods. By and large, just in kind of the simplest terms, what effect does that ultra processed food diet do to our blood glucose levels? Oh, yeah. Okay. So here's the way that I like to think about it. Okay. When you eat a food, Okay, a food that comes from the natural world, a whole food, call it a potato or a mango or a bowl of black beans. Okay. These foods are are, are three-dimensional matrices, matrices. Okay. So a three-dimensional matrices is a uh, a ball, if you would, or like a whole collection of energy that is very tightly uh in and intricately constructed. Okay. So when you eat the food, you eat it as a whole three-dimensional matrix, but as it travels down, it gets grinded up by your teeth, it travels down your esophagus, it gets inside of your stomach, it starts to get uh, linearized and sort of like uh, partially digested. Then it gets inside of your small intestine where it gets fully digested, okay? What ends up happening is that this three-dimensional matrix ends up getting, getting uh, sort of unraveled and simplified, okay? So the three-dimensional matrix has fiber as the rebar, okay? I don't know if you've ever seen like a highway overpass being constructed or some type of concrete structure. But usually what they do is they'll take this stuff called rebar, which is uh, it's a metal, and they will use the metal in, um, you know, like if you're constructing a pillar as an example, a pillar that's going to hold up a highway overpass, they'll frame it with wood on the outside, they'll put rebar down the middle, and then they'll bring the concrete trucks out and they'll pour concrete. So the final product actually is what it looks like on the outside is just pure concrete, but on the inside, there's actually a whole bunch of metal that's there to reinforce the structure, okay? The same thing happens inside of Whole Foods. The fiber is the rebar. It's there to reinforce the structure of the food, and it gives it its characteristic shape and texture, okay? 
So the rebar is actually really powerful for you because when you consume that fiber rebar, it actually slows down the absorption of glucose into your blood, which is a good thing for you. And then it travels further down your digestive system into your large intestine where it actually is food for your microbiome. And that's a good thing because your microbiome then goes on to create short chain fatty acids, which are beneficial for all tissues. So the fiber rebar is important. And that is something that will slow down the digestive process. But then in addition to that, there's also micronutrients. There's vitamins, minerals, uh, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. And all of those are these micro, micro, micronutrients that have very protective effects on your vasculature, on your eyesight, on nerve conduction, uh, on literally moving electricity throughout your body, um, on sexual function, on the function of cell receptors inside of all tissues, on the way that your kidneys function and beyond. So in other words, you want to be eating all of these materials because the micronutrients plus the macronutrients plus the rebar all has physiologic function. When you're eating processed or ultra-processed foods, the processing of those foods removes most of those behind-the-scenes players. So if you take something like, a perfect example is uh, sugar cane. You take sugar cane and you process the heck out of it. You crack it, you mill it, or you, you grind it, you bleach it, you dehydrate it. You end up with this thing called a white crystal and it's called table sugar. Okay, That is an ultra processing. And by the time it's table sugar, table sugar has zero vitamins, zero minerals, zero fiber, zero antioxidants, zero phytochemicals. So all of the goodness that was supposed to come along with it in the original food is now gone. You end up with a white crystalline substance. The minute you put that into your mouth, within a few minutes now, it's in your blood. It acts quickly. It causes your blood glucose to elevate in a very short period of time. And that becomes problematic for all tissues. So ultra processing is just a way of thinking about how many nutrients are removed. You want to retain as many nutrients as possible from the original food. And when you do it that way, you can maximize both your short and long-term health. What about, I mean, you go down the sugar aisle or you go into any coffee shop in America, you're going to see a bunch of different sugar choices out there, including raw sugar. Is that right. any better? Or is that just marketing gimmicks? Marketing, marketing yeah. hype marketing hype, all, all this stuff. Then, you know, they say, oh, aspartame's good for you. Splenda, sweet and low, all of these things. They're just, they're just different things. They're just different ways of putting a stamp on a refined, on a highly refined and ultra processed thing. Aspartame, as an example, is not the same thing as table sugar. It's slightly different. It's a dipeptide, yada, yada, yada. But the fact of the matter is none of that stuff's found in nature. And, and all of that stuff is likely to be problematic and increase your risk for chronic disease. Let's grab a couple more, and then we'll talk about the Blood Sugar Revolution Summit that you've got coming up, man. That's yeah, super yeah. exciting. Um, just in terms of ultra-processed foods, stick here for just a second here. I mean, we were talking about maybe ranking oils earlier in the show, but like, what are the worst of the worst? I mean, is it the drive-through monstrosities that are the worst of the worst? Is it the frozen TV dinners? Is it like the ultra-deep dish pizza? Sorry, Chicago. Like, you know, what is true? <laughs> Truly the worst of the worst here when it comes to, um, you know, your your blood glucose levels and increasing your risk of diabetes or worsening it if you already have it. My answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of those foods are 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 uh, nutritional napalm for you, right? I don't know off the top of my head how to rank order like a, a frozen pot pie that you get in the grocery store versus a Big Mac, right? Or whether you're going to take a, a churro from the uh, carnival versus uh, a funnel cake from, you know, uh, a, 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 an amusement park, right? All of those foods have been so over-processed and so ultra-processed that they're going to trigger inflammatory processes inside of all tissues inside of your stomach, inside of your small intestine, your large intestine, your kidney, your liver, everything that you can think of that could go wrong is likely to go wrong because they have added ingredients. A lot of them are artificial sweeteners and you know the list goes on. So that would actually be pretty fun to do in another show where we sort of like rank order all the worst of the worst foods. But um, if you can, you know what it is. 
when you go to the grocery store, when you're looking around and, and there is even like a tiny little voice in the back of your mind that says, you know what, you probably shouldn't need this. Listen to that voice because that is your ultra processed detective and that guy's right. Yeah, man. A show like that where we do rank the worst of the worst, that would be just like a sweet slice of evil right there. I mean, that would just be <laughs> epic. I mean, that would be a lot of fun. I mean, I would I would have a blast with that, to be honest with you. Um, so yeah, let's let's do that. Um, we were talking about with the process of processing foods, stripping all of those nutrients mm -hmm. out of there. To a certain degree, you get that when you do juicing. You're certainly eliminating the fiber there. So yep. um, if somebody wanted to do a, say, a juice fast or something like that, what effect mm -hmm. would that juice, even if it's just freshly squeezed orange juice, have mm -hmm. on a person's blood glucose compared to eating the orange itself? Great question. So when you take a whole food like an orange and you juice it and you get rid of predominantly fiber, you are losing a little bit of vitamin, mineral, antioxidant, you know, and phytochemical content because a lot of that gets sort of like pulled out with the fiber, but you're retaining a good portion of it. Does that mean it's bad for you? And the answer is, well, it's not ideal because, you know, losing the fiber causes the glucose and the fructose from that orange juice to get absorbed relatively quickly. So it's not ideal. Um, what I would say is that if you are going to juice and drink juices during the day, my suggestion would be to do it predominantly from vegetables. You know, people refer to them as green juices. Okay. You take your kales and your broccolis and your, uh, cucumbers and red peppers and, um, non-starchy vegetables. You put them through a blender and you end up with actually a very tasty, you know, beverage, usually has a green color. You drink it, and because it's predominantly made from vegetables, what that means is that the total glucose and fructose quantity is very small. So you can drink those types of juices as all day long, every day, and they're likely not gonna cause your blood glucose to do funny things, simply because they just don't have that much to begin with. The minute you add something like a carrot, or an orange, or an apple, or a mango, or papaya, right? You are now increasing the total amount of glucose and fructose inside of that juice, which again, would be totally fine if you were eating the entire food. But because it's in the juiced version, and it's being stripped of fiber, it tends to be just a little bit more problematic. Is Cyrus saying you can never juice anything? My answer is no. You, if you want to have small amounts of fruit inside of your juice, you can do that, but just be real careful the second thing I would do is I would eat, I would drink it very slowly. You know, like literally one juice could be drank over the course of like 30 to 60 minutes. And finally, the last thing I'll say is if you're going to do that, then please be sure to be eating other foods at the same time that do have fiber in them. I really want you to think about fiber as being a break. Fiber is a break and it slows everything down. And that is a good thing for you. So if the fiber's not in the juice, then make sure the fiber's in the food that you're eating and the presence of that fiber can slow down the absorption of the juice. All right. Uh, really quickly here, let's let's end with this question. And that is going back to, again, almost what we talked about at the top. I mean, let's let's talk about somebody who has really struggled with their blood glucose for a number of years. I mean, maybe two decades or longer, Cyrus, and they just are at their wits end with the insulin injections. Maybe they're on metformin, a host of other medications as well. They don't have a good quality of life they're ready to start making some changes so that they can get the life back that they want so walk us through the process of what are the first things that they should do to start making some changes in their life that hopefully can get them on this path where they at the very least can begin to reduce the amount of medications and injections that they have to take every single day it's a great question. By the way, if, if you hear my cat, she's uh, she's going nuts. I was right here. Hopefully, <laughs> she won't be too distracting. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a great question because the 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 avatar that you just pulled up is 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 a real person. Okay, maybe some of you are in, in who are in the audience right now, or people who are going to listen to this after the fact, identify with exactly what Chuck just described. Right? You might be taking 
one or multiple blood glucose lowering medications. You might be using a blood pressure lowering medication. You might be on a statin medication. You might be using an injectable medication like Ozempic or Wegovy uh, to try and lose weight. There can be a whole host of things. Now, we like to refer to that sometimes as called the medication train to nowhere, which is that one medication may do something small, but then it triggers the need for another one and another one and another one before you know it now. You're taking so many medications, you don't even know what problems you're trying to solve because now you're trying to solve the side effects of the medications that you're taking rather than the original problem. It can become a real nightmare. But if you're in that situation and you want to get to a point where you say, listen, I, I, I trust the concept that eating a plant-rich diet is going to you know, significantly improve my, my health, what I would recommend is making changes slowly. And the reason I recommend that is because if you are in, if you're taking multiple different types of medications simultaneously, and if you make very fast dietary changes, then your need for medication can fall very quickly. And if your need for medication for blood pressure, lowering medication falls quickly, but you don't make the change, you can become lightheaded. It can be very dangerous for you and you might end up you know, falling down on the ground and I don't want that and I know you don't want that. Okay, so making these changes slowly, I think, is something that's very important if you are highly medicated. Number two, working with your doctor or finding a plant-based doctor is going to be very powerful too because they can help de-prescribe medications for you. And then finally, making changes slowly, I think, is very important for your long, 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 long-term longevity eating a plant-based diet. No matter what the habit change is, whether you're trying to start a meditation regimen, you're trying to change your diet, you're trying to start an exercise regimen, you're trying to reduce the amount of alcohol you drink, making changes quickly doesn't always work. Humans love to try and get quick results when they, when they do things, but making habits quickly doesn't really work out in the long term. So what I would recommend doing is just choose one meal out of the day. Usually start with breakfast and then make your breakfast as plant-rich as possible. Try and eliminate the oil from that and just really get into that meal. You could do that for like a week or two weeks or three weeks, but like just really, really enjoy it. Figure out what do you like eating, how much, and how full does it make you feel? Is it oats with fruit? Is it uh, steel-cut oats? Is it a bowl of fruit by itself? Is it potatoes with... Uh, tomatoes? Is it, a, is it a tofu stir fry? You get to be the experimenter and figure out what it is that you enjoy eating. Once you feel comfortable with that meal, then progress onto lunch. That could take you another two to three weeks. Once you feel good with that, then you can progress onto dinner. That could take you another two to three weeks. Before you know it, over the course of a couple of months, you've then changed your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner. And as a result of that, you're able to really start to change your diet over the course of time without putting yourself at risk, going from a highly medicated uh, environment to hopefully a lower medicated environment. And it enables you to start to retrain your brain so that you can make these changes and stick with them in the long term to avoid that yo-yo dieting that we were talking about prior. I hope this is helpful. Is that helpful? It is, man. It's helpful and it's hopeful and it's inspiring, brother man. And I know that the Blood Sugar Revolution Summit that you have coming up November 1st through the 8th is going to be all of what it is that we talked about today and then some. Back in the day, I would have said end a bag of chips, but number one, that would date me. Number two, uh -huh. we don't want to put chips on the menu any longer. So talk to us about the Blood Sugar Revolution Summit, man. What's cooking up there for that week? Absolutely. So the Blood Sugar Revolution Summit is basically an annual summit. It's, an, it's a virtual online summit that we put together to interview the best of the best of the best. And just like you said, this summit goes live from November 1st to November 8th, and you can start registering for the summit today, which is October 18th. Now, every day, there's going to basically be three speakers who get the stage to be able to talk about their expertise. And the speakers that we invite to the summit are very, very eloquent speakers who have done a whole collection of research. They're either researchers, they're doctors, or they're authors. And we have uh, physicians who you might be familiar with, including the man, the myth, the legend himself, Dr. Neil Barnard, including the man, the myth, the legend himself, Chuck Carroll himself, including Dr. Joel Kahn, including uh, multiple doctors who are plant-based physicians who... Um, who can teach you about how to de-prescribe medication, like Kim Scheuer, Nikki Davis, and Christina Miller, if you've never heard them talk, they're fantastic. 
good friend of mine, Adam Sud, and his wife, Laura Gouge, are talking in this about food addiction as well. Dr. Joel Furman will be present. Uh, and then in addition to that, we have uh, other experts on inflammation, including Nathan Crane. We have Aisha and Dean Sherzai, the Alzheimer's and dementia experts. We got our good friend, Dr. Matt Nagra, who is a wealth of knowledge. We have our good friend, Chef AJ as well. We have our good friend, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, Dr. Alan Desmond, and Christopher Gardner from Stanford University, who will all talk, be talking about gut health. And then we have people like Rip Esselstyn and Ocean Robbins, who are also powerful, powerful speakers on why and how to change your diet uh, using a, uh, a plant-strong approach. So if you're interested in learning about how you can incorporate this methodology into your life, I highly recommend su signing up for this summit. Again, it's an eight-day summit, three talks per day, and it's 100% free. We're here to help. We're here to teach you how you can lower your blood sugar or you know your blood glucose. But the most important thing that you can take away from this is that your blood glucose is just an avenue to your overall chronic disease risk, okay? Your blood glucose is not the end-all and be-all of your health. It's just one little marker that we can measure frequently, but it gives you a lot of insight into what else is happening behind the surface. And so if you're trying to control your body weight, if you're trying to reduce your need for a statin medication and you want your LDL cholesterol to be lower, maybe you want your C-reactive protein, your marker of inflammation to also be lower. Maybe you want to reduce your blood pressure. Okay, Maybe you want to become more active. Maybe you want higher energy levels. All of these things can be accomplished by simply reducing your blood glucose and being very controlled about how, how, it, uh, uh, you know, how it's controlled over the course of time. And when you do that, amazing things can unfold. Yeah, it's so cool. So bloodsugarrevolution.com is the website to go to sign up for free for the summit. Begins November 1st, runs through the 8th. You heard that list of incredible names. So sign up today, bloodsugarrevolution.com. We also just dropped a link for you uh, to click right there in the chat as well, kind of a one-stop shop. And if you feel like you've raised your health IQ by a point or two today, one more favor to ask, and that is to like this video and subscribe to the channel or follow us uh, here on Facebook as well if you haven't already done so. That really does help us get this life-changing information to people who are in dire straits and talking about diabetes today. People who think that there's nothing that they can do to ever improve their insulin resistance, bring their blood sugar, their blood glucose under control. What we're going to do today just by liking, subscribing, and if you're listening to the podcast, leaving a five-star rating, that does go to really get this information to people who need it, who are in those dire straits. Let's help give them their health back. So take just one second, give the like, and give the subscription, and we would be oh so grateful. And Cyrus Kambada, my man, I am oh so grateful that you got to spend some time with us here today, man. You are a wealth of knowledge as always. Thank you, my man, Chuck. It's always great to be here with you. I appreciate you uh, having me on here. And uh, we, I, I do whatever I can to help. Uh, you know, you are a shining star of, you know, what can happen over the course of time when you really take lifestyle change seriously. And, you know, I'm in awe of what you have accomplished over the course of the last 10 to 15 years. And uh, I'm your biggest fan. So thank you so much. Right back at you, my man. You are a hero and an inspiration to thousands and thousands and thousands as well. You the man. Cyrus is just the man, isn't he? He is absolutely the man. And again, sign up for the Blood Sugar Revolution Summit. Absolutely free. Will cost you nothing except for your time. And invest that time in your health. Sign up at bloodsugarrevolutionsummit.com. There is a link for you right now in the episode notes. Coming up on the next episode, we will be continuing our Let's Beat Breast Cancer conversation with Dr. Christy Funk for this month of October. You know, we just had the big live Q&A with her, and now she and I are going to go one-on-one -on -one and talk about treating and curing breast cancer, comparing the traditional approaches versus the alternative methods that are available. We're going to really get in there and talk in-depth about what each of these treatments are, what they do, what the, what the pros and the cons are, and what those alternatives could be. And a lot of that does center on diet, but it's a really interesting conversation. It's an angle that we have not yet taken here on the show. 
But remember what she said when she was here on the last episode, that is that 50% of breast cancer cases are preventable. And that is what the data shows that is not in dispute. This is irrefutable. But in Dr. Funk's estimation, that number honestly could be as high as 80% or even 90%, which is extraordinary when you think about it. And that is regardless of genetics. So really looking forward to continuing that conversation with her on the next episode. And of course, Dr. Neil Barnard will be back with us for the next exam room live. That will be next Wednesday. You can join us noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel or Facebook page. And as we said on the show today, if you feel like you've raised your health IQ by a point or two, please do hop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. Like the show, follow it, subscribe it, give it a five-star rating and leave a nice review. Help us climb up those nutrition charts. Help us climb up those health charts so that when people go searching for that health podcast, they find this health podcast, this nutrition podcast that can put them on a path toward a healthier life and a brighter future. Please do your part right now by giving the show a five-star rating and subscribing wherever it is that you get your shows. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Cyrus Kambata for being here and helping to raise our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.